Howdy. What's going on? Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. It is heard live every day, by the way, from noon until 3 on WBT Radio in Charlotte. And if you want exclusive content, invitations to events, the weekly live stream, my daily show prep with links, become a patron. Go to thepetecalendarshow.com. This podcast is also supported by North Carolina businesses, so please consider supporting them. Try not to skip through their short ad. Make sure you hit the subscribe button to get every episode for free right to your smartphone or tablet. And thanks so much for your support. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Hope you're having a great day. A lot of people I know getting ready for uh, the Christmas weekend, which is awesome because traffic uh, on the roads uh, is very light. So we love that. Uh, hope you have a, a wonderful Christmas and uh, Happy New Year. I will be off next week, but I'll be back on January 2nd. Chad Adams will be filling in for me next week on a couple of the days and uh, obviously not Monday on Christmas. But uh, he and Chad is filling in for Brett Winterbull uh, today as well. So you can catch him at three o'clock right after this program. 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. Email is Pete at the Pete Callender Show dot com and on Twitter at Pete Callender. So looking at all of the uh, the the hate and the anti-Semitism on campuses all across America and in our cities and stuff, uh, where did all of this come from, particularly on the college campuses? Where did or camp I where where did it all come from is a question worth pondering, writes Barry Weiss at her website, the Free Press or the FP.com. Um for several decades there has been um a pretty toxic worldview incubating in various colleges, in the departments of these colleges, the area studies departments um it's a morally relativist anti-israel and anti-american worldview it's been it's been gestating for years in the social theory programs and such whole narratives have been constructed to dehumanize israelis um and to brand israel as a white colonial project to be resisted the students you see in the videos circulating online, uh, they have been uh, they have been marinating in this ideology, which can be defined best by uh, what it's against, and what it's against is basically everything Western, right? And so now people are waking up to like, wow, this has gotten very bad. How has it gotten so bad? And in this case, in large part, uh, she says, uh, you know. These are terrible ideas, um, but they are powerful ideas. And how rapidly these bad yet powerful ideas can spread. But it's also a story of influence, an influence campaign by actors far outside of the university campus. Follow the money. Last hour, I was uh, talking about this uh Network Contagion Research Institute, the NCRI, that's done, uh, that did the comparison on TikTok videos and such, and how it suppressed or amplified uh, hashtags that just so happen to align with whether or not the Chinese Communist Party agrees or disagrees with those topics. Well, the Network Contagion Research Institute has now taken a look at some of the, uh, some of the money that has been flowing into colleges. They did four separate studies. 
The report finds that at least 200 American colleges and universities illegally withheld information on approximately $13 billion in undisclosed contributions from foreign regimes. Is that a problem? It kind of seems like a problem. Moreover, always keep in mind, correlation is not causation, right? Just because we see these data points aligned, it doesn't mean one causes the other. But there is correlation that the when you find a lot of reported anti-Semitic incidents on a, any given campus, that campus coincidentally has taken a whole bunch of money from Middle Eastern regimes. Now, we don't know if that causes it. It's not like they send the check to the college and then the college is like, okay, you know, let's spread some anti-Semitism. But there is a correlation here. The uh, NCRI found that from 2015 through 2020, institutions that accepted money from Middle Eastern donors had on average 300% more anti-Semitic incidents than the institutions that did not take money from Middle Eastern regimes. Again, probably just a coincidence, right? Now, from 2015 through 2020, Institutions that accepted undisclosed funds from authoritarian donors had a 200 for, uh, 250% uh, more in anti-Semitic incidents than the institutions that did not take money from authoritarian donors. Campuses that accept undisclosed money are, on average, 85% more likely to see campaigns targeting academic scholars for sanction. Uh, including campaigns to investigate, censor, demote, suspend, or terminate. Right. So this is this goes to more of like the the cancel culture that developed between 2015 and 2020, but even really before 2015 as well. But all of these um, uh, these targeting attacks against certain uh, professors, right, who weren't sufficiently woke and uh, uh, said, oh, it's okay to have fun on Halloween. Like, oh my gosh, get rid of them. You know, uh, hey, I want to, you know, I want to invite somebody who's a liberal uh, to the campus. And then the, the illiberal leftists are like, how dare you bring that person to our campus and say something we disagree with. And so then they would, you know, target that uh, that professor or the uh, or the student group that maybe invites Ben Shapiro to campus or something, right? They get targeted and they get canceled. They get uh, fired from the job or brought up on charges, censured something, or censored. And so, if you took money, undisclosed money, you were eighty five percent more likely to see these types of smear campaigns. So, who's doing this concealed funding? Where's the money coming from? You know, do you know who the number one donor is? Qatar. Yeah. The country where Hamas's leadership currently is hiding out, living high on the hog. Well, they're Muslim, so they don't live high on the hog, but they're living in the lap of luxury. Um, far and away, the largest foreign donor to American universities is Qatar. Uh, number two, this is just funding by, uh, by con uh, yeah, by countries. Qatar, number two is, uh, and by the way, number two is like half of what Qatar funds. They're at somewhere around almost uh, 
$3 billion to American campuses. Number two, at $1.5 billion, England. Number three, China. Number four, Saudi Arabia. Number five, Bermuda. Bermuda? I think we need to get to the bottom of this. Why is Bermuda funding college campuses? To like the tune of a billion dollars. Are they trying are they trying to infiltrate us? All right, next up is Canada. Well, you know they are. Uh, Hong Kong, Japan, Switzerland, India, Germany, and the UAE uh, rounds out the top 10. UAE is under half a billion dollars, but by far the biggest approaching uh, almost 3 billion dollars is Qatar. A rely they found that a reliable predictor of the intensity of campus anti-Semitism was the amount of undisclosed money that any given university received from Middle Eastern regimes. Now, again, correlation is not causation. Former Harvard University President Larry Summers says he doesn't think this is about money, or at least primarily. He says it's people who are ideologically part of a movement, whether you call it post-colonial or anti-colonial, that's deeply opposed to Israel. So they're already of that mindset. And so the money may be following them. There are other possibilities that may explain the findings. One obvious one could be that Middle Eastern regimes are sponsoring professorships uh, or programs run by people who hold these views and use their platforms to spread them. Another possibility, universities are looking to attract and retain Middle Eastern funding so they promote positions that they think will please the sensibilities of Middle Eastern regimes. Or maybe it is that universities that are indifferent to the atrocities committed or condoned by some of their largest funders are also indifferent to rising anti-Semitism on campus, allowing it to thrive. And the same would hold true for freedom of expression or freedom of um, or, or academic freedom. Right. So either way, either way. I don't think it's coincidental that the Middle Eastern regimes, these authoritarian, repressive regimes, are funneling billions of dollars into American college campuses who just coincidentally agree with some of the most illiberal aspects of those tyrannical regimes. But what do I know? I'm just a little old radio host. News Talk 1110-993-WBT-704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. Email is Pete at thepetecalendarshow.com. Got this message from uh, Terry, who says, um, on the Middle Eastern money, I think you might have missed an important factor. How many Muslim students are coming with the money? Maybe changing the student mix. Uh, that's possible. A lot of, you know, foreign exchange programs and stuff. A lot of really wealthy uh, children of the the authoritarian oligarchs from those Middle Eastern countries that come here, right? They study here. That Yeah, possibly. Um, but, it's, I mean, it it is pretty obvious to trace the money. In fact, there's a fellow by the name of David, or sorry, Shai David I. David I. 
Shai Devidai. He is uh, he's Jewish. He's Israeli. Uh, he's an assistant professor at Columbia, and he has this very very lengthy uh, Twitter thread or X thread X whatever. Um, he says the vast he claims the vast majority of Muslims and Palestinians oppose Hamas, and I'm not actually so sure that that is the case, particularly when it comes to Palestinians. But um, the uh, one of the things the SJP that he's going to go into, which is the uh, uh, Students for Justice in Palestine (SJP), he says you have to understand where this money comes from. And to understand that, you have to know who these people are. And he calls them a pro-terror organization. SJP's violent actions and rhetoric, he says, do not represent every Palestinian or uh, Muslim person. Um, there's no excuse for Islamophobia or any xenophobia or you know, anything like that. Right? So he gives all the disclaimers. But who gives them the money? I've mentioned this guy before. He's a University of California Berkeley professor named Hatem. Hatem Bayesian. Uh, he, may, he may pronounce it Hatem. Okay, but, I, but it's spelled Hatem. H-A-T-E-M. Hatem. And I just think that's perfect. Hatem Bayesian. Um, Hatem has called for an armed uprising, an intifada in America. He uh, gives speeches. He whips up mobs and such against America. Uh, he he has been espousing anti-Semitism for years, and Berkeley has done nothing. Has done nothing against him. In 2006, this guy Hatem found uh, founded a uh, an organization, and it was called American Muslims for Palestine, or AMP. AMP. Okay, so Hatem founds AMP. He sets up AMP. Um, it was established using money and staff from three different charities. The Holy Land Foundation, the Islamic Foundation for Palestine, and Kind Hearts for Charitable Development. These three charities are now all dissolved. They've had their assets frozen. Do you know why? They were fundraising in America for Hamas. So the people that were doing that are now part of AMP, okay? A Hamas spokesperson explicitly said that one of the goals of the massacre of October 7th and the kidnapping of more than 250 people, including a bunch of Americans, who one of whom has now been killed in captivity, um, one of their goals that Hamas said was the release of these uh, organizations, these three different charities. They're released from prisons in America. They want to use the American captives, that those hostages, to trade to get their pro-Hamas uh, charity people out of American jails. Who's on the AMP's board of directors? Uh, Dr. Osama Abershide, the executive director of AMP, who has called Israel a blood-sucking parasite. He has repeatedly expressed support for Hamas and its desire to free Palestine from the river to the sea. Right? Um, 
let's see here. He says uh, Abishad's not the only problematic individual. There is uh, another fellow named Tahir Herzala that is the director of outreach and grassroots organizing. Herzala uh, sees every person of uh, Jewish nationality or descent as, quote, the enemy. Herzala uh, was the national campus coordinator for American Muslims for Palestine. And in that role, he would coordinate all of the college chapters for Students for Justice in Palestine, SJP. So AMP and SJP right, are connected by the money, but also the people. There's another fellow named Tarek Khalil, the education coordinator at AMP. Um, this is the person who is in charge of uh, coordinating their agenda uh, with SJP. And let's see, they held their national convention in Tinley Park, Illinois, uh, where they ran a special program for students called Campus Activism Track. And this guy, Khalil, uh, taught college students how to coordinate the language they use in their pro-Hamas protests. He says it's essential we employ these terms to create linguistic uniformity in our messaging and, more importantly, in our activism. Uh, join us to learn how to properly justify and utilize the language of anti-Zionism. Arguing with a Zionist can be tedious. Come learn points to use and how to deflate common phrases used by Zionists. Put your new skills to the test and debate. Apartheid, ethnic cleansing, normalization, colonization, anti-Semitism, anti-Zionism. These words are consistently misunderstood, misused, and thus creates confusion. Using this language often prompts counter-arguments that students may not always know how to refute. Oh, um, AMP is also trying to get into American high schools. They've been doing so for the last decade. Yeah. They're, and they are not hiding their role in their pro-Hamas protests uh, and activism. It's all up there on their website, ampalestine.org. All right, do the current world events have you wondering whether we are teetering on the edge of catastrophe? Are you concerned it's going to reach our shores? Okay, so what are you doing about your concerns? Let me help. Carolina Readiness Supply at carolinareadiness.com. Whether you're looking to expand your emergency preparedness supplies or you have no idea where to even begin, Carolina Readiness Supply can help you. Food, water purifiers, tools, first aid kits, instructional materials, camping and hiking supplies even. Because being prepared is just smart. Carolina Readiness Supply has 2,000 square feet of supplies and educational materials that you'll need for any kind of emergency. In Waynesville and always at carolinareadiness.com, veteran-owned Carolina readiness supply will you be ready when the lights go out 1110 wbt 704-570-1110 1-800-WBT-1110 email is pete at the pete calendar show.com uh let's head over to the phone lines and get uh, robert on first hello robert welcome to the show hey thank you i enjoy your show Let, thank enjoy you listening long time listener i appreciate that merry christmas to you listen we've sold this country out to the highest bidder and most people wouldn't know this unless you went to a college or a university campus. I went with a friend of mine last fall to UNCC, and they probably had five or 600 graduating. And I'll lie you not, 97% of the people that walked and got their diploma that day, I couldn't even pronounce their name. 
it was it was totally ridiculous. So these were students from like foreign exchange students. You're thinking? I'm I'm assuming I don't know who they were, but mm-hmm. they were graduating that day with most of them with their masters or with their PhD. Right. And I could not pronounce their names. I mean, there was only just a. I'm almost positive there wasn't three or four percent of the students there that graduated that were American. Well, I mean, I, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't know how you would know whether somebody is an American just based on their last name because they're right. They, I mean, like my last name, if pronounced. Well, I'm certain- just assuming that you know if I, you know, if I can't pronounce their name, I mean, you know, you can tell when somebody's from Pakistan or. Iran or whatever, whatever, you know. Well, I mean, I, well, I, I don't know. If you're talking to them, you may, if they have a very thick foreign accent or something, then, yeah, you might be able to kind of uh, assume that they are, they're not uh, native-born American, but just the the name itself alone would not would not do that, right? Because they could be second generation, third generation, and that's just their last name, and they, they could oh. be... You know, legal. I understand what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Typically, I couldn't. You know, it right. wasn't a typical name that you would hear in the states. What? Uh, so, was this for the entire campus that was graduating, or was it um, was it a particular department that was graduating? This was the entire campus. The entire campus. Okay. And the reason I ask is that a lot of like the hard sciences, you see a lot of uh, a lot more foreign students that come to American colleges in order to get educated in the in the hard sciences and in a lot of the quote soft sciences. You know, uh, that's where you see a lot of American kids going through those programs. So, uh, yeah, I appreciate the call, Robert. Thank you very much. Merry Christmas to you. Let me go over here and get on. Uh, is this is your your pronoun is Papa Craig? Hello, Papa Craig. Yes, sir. That would be Papa Craig. Pop is that P A P A or is that Pop A Craig? P A P A. Okay. I I was just telling your uh, screener. Um, I am currently reading a book called Kill Khalid. It's actually about uh, Khalid Mishal, who was one of the founders and now one of the leaders of Hamas. Okay. And uh, you spoke earlier about fundraising. Mm -hmm. Uh, His brother, who is living in America, was a coordinator for the Holy Land Foundation. Mm Mm-hmm. In the early 2000s, the United States government went to shut them down because they were funneling about $15 million a year to Hamas. Yeah. In this, in this book, all the uh, actors that are currently in the um, involvement in Gaza, Israel... Um, there's Hezbollah mm-hmm. in southern Le- Lebanon. Um, there is the Islamic Jihad, which actually came out of Egypt. Uh, the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, there is Hamas, of mm-hmm. course. And there's Fatah. Well, Fatah was part of the PLO and the Palestinian Authority mm-hmm. under Yasser Arafat. 
and they were willing to recognize Israel and create a second state. But Hamas, in 2006, 2007, won the election in Palestine, and that is where everything has evolved from there. Well, in Gaza. Yeah, they they won the election in Gaza, and then they proceeded to murder uh, the Fatah people who still control the West Bank. And Hamas, uh, if given the opportunity to vote in the West Bank, um, Fatah would lose that election, too, according to polling, and Hamas would take over control of the West Bank as well. So, yeah, oh, all yeah. of this. Yeah, all of this stuff is known. But remember, Charlotte was one of the uh, Charlotte had the, that huge case where uh, uh, guys were uh, running cigarettes uh, up to Michigan. They were they were buying van loads of cigarettes, driving it up to Michigan, selling it up there because this, the uh, the taxes on the cigarettes were so much higher. So they would go up and they they were basically running a, a, a smuggling operation to make money. And the money that they made in profits off of the because they buy them cheap here at the warehouse at the discount places and stuff or the manufacturers. And then they would load up their trucks. They would drive them to Michigan and they would take the profits and they would buy equipment and send the money to Hezbollah. And there were three, I think three of them, that were busted for that uh, after a security guard, I think, saw them loading up all these cigarettes in the back of a truck and alerted authorities to it, and the investigation ended up um, uh, landing them in federal court, and they got convicted. It was a material support for terrorism charges that these guys faced and were convicted of here in Charlotte right after 9-11. Well, it's kind of interesting that Israel and the United States uh, supplied Fatah and the PLO, PA, Palestinian Authority, uh, supplied them with weapons to fight Hamas prior to and after the elections that the Hamas won. Yeah, it's it, it's all a, it's all a mess. Because uh, uh, like Israel also thought that Hamas was going to be uh, easier to deal with because they had started up as like some charitable organization supposedly, and so initially they thought Hamas would be uh, a better partner for peace, and that turned out to not be true. Uh, so there have been yeah a lot of mistakes made along the way. Uh, Craig, I appreciate the call, Papa Craig. Sorry, Papa Craig. Uh, I appreciate the call. Thanks um, uh, for the conversation. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year to you. Um, the uh, the the activists that are organizing these pro-Palestinian protests uh, across America, they share a lot of affiliations with designated terrorist factions, and they're pulling in money from anonymous sources, and a lot of them are leftists, and that's sort of this intersectionality, right? Hamas and Marxism. This intersectionality gets you your oppressed oppressor uh, prism, right? That's the thing that animates them. I'll go into details on this in a minute. News Talk 1110-993-WBT, 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. There's a, a big write-up on the roots of uh, Marxism and the Palestinian cause. Uh, this is uh, put together by uh, a fellow who goes by the name of Les Polymaths, but... Um, the the Palestinian cause, with its history of conflict and struggle for self-determination, it intersects with Marxist ideology. So first, Marxism, economic, political ideology, right? Karl Marx, Friedrich Engels, 
right? Over it advocates the overthrow of uh, capitalist systems, and it frames societal structures as a struggle between the oppressor and the oppressed, right? The oppressor being the bourgeoisie, and the oppressed being the proletariat, the workers, right? And it aims to establish a classless society with communal ownership of production. Control the means of production. It evolved to influence global liberation movements. Okay, Marxism's adaptation across different regions, notably in post-colonial nations, those that had been colonized, has been utilized as a lens to interpret and respond to imperial and colonial influences. This ideological shift from economic class struggle to a broader anti-imperialist resistance is crucial to understanding Marxism's role in the Palestinian issue, in their cause. Okay, because mid-1900s, like 1950s or so, right, Marxism becomes a beacon for various anti-colonial movements across Asia, uh, Latin America, Africa, and in these regions, Marxism was used to fit the context of national liberation struggles. That's why when you go to the back to the 50s and 60s, you see this liberation term used in all sorts of organizations' names. For the Palestinians, the Palestinian movement, Marxism provided not just an economic critique, but a, a comprehensive framework for resistance. Its narrative of struggling against the, the oppressor appealed to those confronting what they saw as an occupation and colonization by the Israelis. This ideological adoption was part of a larger trend where liberation movements worldwide sought to align themselves with socialist principles as a means to oppose Western imperialism and forge a new identity for themselves in self-governance and independence. And that's why you, and you heard the earlier caller there reference the the PAL or the PLO, uh, Palestinian Liberation right Organization, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. That was the original name, the PFLP. It explicitly embraced Marxism. Right? It was a secular, socialist orientation, which is different than Hamas, which emphasizes uh, you know, Islam. But it also is an example of these different strains within the Palestinian movement and how they have been influenced by global left-wing ideologies. Islamic Marxism is this blend of Islamic thought and Marxist principles. And this took hold among the Palestinians, groups like the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. right? They, they were initially uh, uh, inclined towards socialist principles blended with Islamic teachings. And in fact, uh, you hear sometimes even um, non, uh, you know, non, uh, uh, you know, Islamist or jihadist type uh, Muslims, they will talk about how Islam does all of these good works for the people, right? It's a, it's a very kind of, uh, you know, for the people kind of uh, ideology or religion. And you and they they tout this. They this is one of the selling features. We you know the, that as a Muslim we care about the poor. Uh, we do all of these things for the poor. We tax for the poor and all that. This blending though of ideologies paves the way then for extremist factions to emerge. Factions then could justify their terrorism as part of a broader struggle against the oppressor and imperialism. 
Yasser Arafat's role at the helm of the PLO was pivotal in unifying various Palestinian factions. It created a sense of unity back in the 70s, right? Problem was it also entrenched this this combative stance as the cornerstone of Palestinian identity. It had a constant emphasis on resistance, which has, of course, hindered the development of any kind of alternative vision for the future of Palestinian society that's not predicated on conflict. And this makes sense. You hear me talk about this all the time, right? Where it's the issue is not the issue. The issue is the revolution. And you're always in a state of revolution. This is why you hear commies and socialists say stuff like, well, true communism has never been tried. Right? Because you're always in this uh, Hegelian dialectic where you're always ripping down all of the things that aren't perfected in order to leave the one perfect thing remaining and then build whole new systems off of that one perfect thing and the idea is that eventually you get to the perfect system because you've torn away all of the imperfect things. Which, of course, is hubris. The idea that you would know what is perfect and what is not initially, but also the idea that we as human beings can make things that are perfect, particularly governing structures. None of it is going to be perfect. So you're in a constant state of destruction. It never ends. The decolonized narratives frame conflicts in terms of uh, moral binaries. Good, bad. That's it. That's all it is. Oppressor, oppressed. Right? Victim, villain. That's it. The logic that is inherent in these decolonization narratives that oppressed groups have the right to resist by any means necessary, including violence, including what we saw on October 7th, right? That's what we heard in defense of Hamas, was that they were just, you know, decolonizing. That raises concerns about genocidal outcomes. Because if you take the logic to the extreme, it escalates to violence, to societal upheaval, right? To genocide. So... The crystallization of Palestinian identity, which was influenced by the Marxist narratives of liberation and resistance, right? that's the inherent challenge to achieving peace and coexistence. Yeah.